Jesus had a way of asking penetrating questions. Questions that got to the heart of the matter and questions that the people in those stories heard, but sometimes questions that we're also invited to hear. Questions that were being asked. And so we're going to be today in the Gospel of John, chapter 5. And so we're setting up what's gone before. Bobby Joe mentioned the story of the woman at the well from Samaria. But there's been a whole series of events where Jesus has had encounters with people. He's encountered people at a wedding. And at this wedding, he changed water into a wine and demonstrated how God's grace flows in abundance and his ability to transform. Then he met a man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, who came to him in the middle of the night. And Jesus talked about how he was the one who could bring new life. How Jesus brought new life and the call to put our faith in him. And then this woman at the well where Jesus tells her about what living water is. And how Jesus is the source of this living water. And so now we have this story and that sets the scene for this story we find in chapter 5 of John. Where it says, sometime later Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. And now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool. Which in Aramaic is called Bethesda which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. And so we know what? Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and there's a festival. We're not sure which one of the festivals it is. And John doesn't seem particularly concerned as that's not important at the time, but he's going. So one of the things we know is there's going to be a lot of people there. So these Jewish religious festivals, whether it was Passover or Tabernacles, large crowds of people would come from all over to Jerusalem. So there's crowds and crowds of people, and we hear that he's by the Sheep Gate, so the northern part of Jerusalem. And there, there's this pool with these five covered colonnades, which they've discovered in this archaeological digging. So there's this location, and it's called Bethesda, or you may see a note, it may be called Bethsaida, different possibilities for the name there. But it says there's a pool. And if we've been reading John, we might think a pool. Well, what do you put in a pool? Water. Water, right? Well... Water, so far we've heard in the story, Jesus has turned water into wine. He's talked about himself as living water. He's been baptized. So John is in perhaps setting up the idea that something special is about to happen here. Because there's something involving water. Something involving life and abundance. And it says there's this great number of disabled people. The blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And they don't get a lot of mentioned in the Gospel of John. If you read the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these other stories of Jesus, we hear lots about the crowds and about healings and exorcisms. John doesn't have that so much. But imagine this picture, this large open area and this pool and all these colonnades, and all around are people who are blind or lame or paralyzed. I don't know, for me, it's just this picture of sadness. When we were in Chicago this last week, I remember walking down the streets. It took a day and went into the city and walked down Michigan Avenue, which is, there are lots of big department stores, but you still would see here and there homeless folks and people laying by the street and huddled up in their blankets or down in the subway. And now I imagine that multiplied by hundreds. And just this crowd of things and and what's interesting is the way that it talks about Jesus seeing him. Because I know for me, oftentimes in those settings, my inclination, my first response is often to turn my eyes away. But Jesus sees and, 
And I get this sense of sadness, this sense of overwhelming, of imagining walking in, coming in for this festival, and you walk into, imagine something two or three times the size of our gym. And just everywhere you look are people who are blind or lame or paralyzed, which means they're suffering, which means they are cast off by their families, which means they've been left there. They're left there to kind of fend for themselves. And now imagine someone who can't walk. Well, how do they get around? There were no wheelchairs. There were no, so they would literally drag themselves along the ground. Their hands getting roughed up by the rocks and imagine just the difficulty of the everyday things that we do. And not being able to do those, not even be able to take good care of your personal hygiene. And so here's this huge place filled with all these things. And so we're going to take a little detour. So set that scene in your mind. And then if you have your Bible and you're following along, you may feel like something happened because your verse three, there's this great number of people. And then verse five, one who was there had been invalid. You think, well, what happened to verse four? Did they make a mistake in my Bible? Oftentimes in our Bible, there's a little note at the bottom there, and it says, some manuscripts contained. And I just want to talk a little bit about that, because sometimes we see that in our Bibles, and it'll say, well, some manuscripts or older manuscripts. When we read our Bible, it's, being, it's coming from literally thousands of manuscripts. We have copies of, and when I say manuscripts, partial or full copies of different books of the Bible or entire books of the Bible. So, some of it may be just a few verses, and there's thousands of these. One of the, the New Testament is better attested than any other ancient literature we have. But what scholars do is they take these manuscripts and they look at them and they find that there's a very, very small percentage. What's amazing is with all these thousands of manuscripts, there's very, very small differences between them. And this is hand-copied manuscripts. They didn't have photocopy machines, but instead, scribes said, I don't know if, if you've ever sat Maybe your teacher made you write something a hundred times or a thousand times on the blackboard. Or you had a page and you just had to copy. This was what some of my teachers would make us do is if we did something wrong. We didn't just write a single sentence. They would give us a page or two out of a book and we just had to copy the page out of the book. And it's real easy to make a mistake when you're writing along and you're following. Now you're reading from somebody else's handwriting and you're copying that all day long. That's your job. And so once in a while they make a little mistake or a little error. And here what we find is sometimes there's different, some manuscripts are much closer to the time of Jesus, some are a little later. And some of them insert this verse, verse 4, and it talks about, and it says this, um, and they waited for the moving of the waters from time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. And the first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. And so at some point this legend had developed, and some of the manuscripts had it and some didn't. It doesn't mean we shouldn't trust our Bible. When we see these little notes and say there's something a little bit different, the Bible is completely trustworthy. It's just there's these little variations, and none of them have any significance on matters of faith. They're just little details. Maybe it's a name, and like I said, Bethesda has a couple different names. That doesn't make a difference, whether it's Bethesda or Bethsaida or Bethsatha. So, whatever those. So, end of that rabbit trail. Back to the story here. Okay. Um, so it says one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Now we're not told what the ailment is, but 30, 
eight years. We get this sense that whatever has been wrong with him, it's been with him a long, long time. Now, some of you know what that's like, either for yourself or a family member to have an ongoing ailment. And he had been here, going back to this pool, back to this huge crowd of people, 38 years he'd been there. And then, like I said, and that says, when Jesus saw him lying there, and this is the thing that gets me, Jesus sees him. For whatever reason, whatever's going on in Jesus that, again, like I said, the tendency would maybe to be, Jesus is there for the festival. There's no reason to go necessarily to this pool. There's no reason to go into this room full of people who were this giant open area. It's not even a room, giant open colonnade, were people who were cast out by society. But Jesus enters in, and he notices one man. He sees him. And then he asks him that question, do you want to get well? Which seems kind of like a rude question, doesn't it? Maybe a little bit jarring to say, but what Jesus is doing, as he often does, he asks a question that gets to the heart of things. But one of the things that when Jesus asks this question, he doesn't ask the man if he wants to be healed. He says, do you want to get well? And the, la- the language, the sense of it is, do you want to be made whole? So he's asking him more than just if he wants to be able to walk again. He's asking him, do you want to be fully restored to be all who you're supposed to be? And as Jesus asks this question, it opens up possibility. It's this whisper of an invitation to someone who's been outcast, who's been suffering, to say, do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be well? And the man seems to misunderstand the question, which seems to be a running pattern with Jesus. Jesus asks a question. Jesus says something people don't understand. And he says, sir, I have no one to help me into the pool. When the water is stirred, while I'm trying to get in, somebody else gets out ahead of me. And you almost have this picture of the water stirs up and all of a sudden there's this bubbling in the water and there's these crowds of people and they're crawling over each other and they're fighting with one another to try and get into the pool. And the man hears Jesus ask the question, do you want to get well? And he misunderstands maybe and he thinks, maybe Jesus is willing to help me out here. Maybe this guy standing here, he did, at this point he doesn't even know his name. Maybe this guy who's asking me if I want to get well, he's going to help me. When the water's stirred, he's going to pick me up and he's going to throw me in the pool. And I'm going to be better. He's going to help me fight past the crowd. He's going to block that one guy who always pushes me out of the way. And he hears Jesus' question and that's what he's envisioning. But he fails to see that the one who is there is the Son of God. He fails to see that the one who is there can give him so much more than a little help into the pool. But something John doesn't tell us directly, but we get from what the man says, is he says, I have no one to help me. Not only is the man an invalid, not only has he been sick for 38 years and laying by this pool and been struggling because day after day after day, somebody else gets there ahead of him. But he has no one. No one to help him. 
And the level of sadness, the level of pain just goes a little bit deeper. And so when the man says, oh, I don't have anyone to help me, Jesus kind of ignores that. And he simply says to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Not, oh yeah, I'll help you into the pool. But no, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And so we see, in a sense, Jesus simply speaks words of power. He doesn't ask if the man believes. There's nothing in the man exhibiting trust, but simply, here's this thing, get up. And the language there is the same language that Jesus uses later to tell Lazarus to come out of the tomb. It's the same language used when Jesus is raised from the dead. This language of getting up is language of resurrection. It's, res it's language of new life. It's saying, experience new life now. And then take up your mat and walk. Not only be raised to new life, but now walk in this new life. And so there's this picture of you are now given a new life. You are given a new birth, as he says in some sense to Nicodemus, although we're not necessarily saying he has faith, but he's experiencing a new life and he's being invited to walk this new direction, to walk in this new life. Because what the man is experiencing is he was looking for help to get into the pool. He was looking for Life in the pool, his hope was placed in the pool, and what he failed to realize is the hope that he needed was standing there in front of him. And Jesus gives that to him. And so the man hears it, get up, take up your mat and walk, and that's what the man does. He picks up his mat and he walks. And then, we're told this little day of tale. Well, the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. We haven't heard about that up until this point, but all of a sudden we're like, oh, there's some reason we're being told about the Sabbath and something is about to go on. And so we hear now the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. Because apparently part of the Sabbath regulations was you weren't allowed to carry items from one district into another. That was considered work. God had given this gift of the Sabbath to rest. And so the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders had constructed these rules to help people know, well, what's work and what's not? They said, sometimes we paint the Pharisees as totally bad guys, but we might have that same question. We read the commandment says, you shall do no work on the Sabbath. Well, what's work and what's not work? And so they had said, well, you don't carry your mat. And so there's this conflict that goes on. And the Sabbath conflict is important, but I really want to stay focused kind of on what's going on with the man here, because I think that's the key for the story that I want to look at today. I mean, I think Jesus knew it was the Sabbath. He could have waited till the next day to heal the guy. He certainly knew that when he told the man to walk, that he was going to be violating the Sabbath. And there's this whole thing on. And so the, the, but these leaders, as they confront him, they say, you're not supposed to be doing this. And we hear the man. And he says, well, the man who made me well said, pick up your mat and walk. And I think when I first read this, I thought, man, this guy's just throwing Jesus under the bus, isn't he? Here he is, he's getting caught. The religious leaders have said, oh, you're carrying your mat on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do this. And he's like, well, I didn't, you know, the guy told me to. How many of us have ever used that excuse? Well, I was told. But I don't think he's necessarily shifting blame here. I mean, part of it may be he's just not 
the brightest guy in the world. Maybe he's not real street smart. And so when these Jewish leaders say, well, you're carrying your mat on the Sabbath, he's like, well, I don't know, the guy told me to. The other is, I think in part, and we'll come back to this. Here he is, he has been laying there for how long? 38 years. And someone who he doesn't know comes to him and says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And you now, all of a sudden, with these legs that have been able to move, now are up and you're walking around on these legs, experiencing something you may have forgot what it's even to feel like. And you're carrying your mat. And you're thinking, if the guy told me to get up, I'm going to carry my mat too. I mean, he's like, this is the guy who made me whole. This is the guy who made me well. He told me to do it. I'm going to listen to him. And the religious leaders, they just, they don't want to hear it. It's like, well, so who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? Notice how they ask the question, though. They're not really concerned about the fact that he can walk. Right. That somebody healed him. They just want to know about these rules. You know, who's told you? you know, there's no question about the healing. The guy's like, I don't know who he is. The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped his way into the crowd. So now we're left with this story. So we have Jesus entering this pool. He, he makes this man whole. The man takes his mat and walks. He gets, in count, gets um, confronted by the religious leaders. And they say, well, who, who, who told you to, you could break the Sabbath like that? It's like, I know, this guy told me to pick up my mat and walk. I did. Well, who was he? Who told you to pick up your mat and walk? I don't know. This is Jesus had slipped away. So now we've got this crowd in Jerusalem. And interestingly, it says later, Jesus found him at the temple. Which is just incredible. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people in Jerusalem. And here Jesus finds this one guy. The same person. And if you thought the question about do you want to get well was awkward... Then Jesus says, well, see you are, I see you are well again. Now stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And you go, wow. Not like, hey, you're looking good. Good job. No, stop sinning. I mean, the man's here at the temple. He's celebrating. And this is just a really strange thing to say to him. And I struggle with this one. Maybe you did too. Like, what, how is he sinning? What did he do wrong? And I'm not entirely sure. And in part, that's not part of the story. But there's a good suggestion, I think, that when he says it, he says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Something worse than being paralyzed and lame for 38 years. And so the implication is perhaps that the man had done something in his life that led to this state of paralysis. And you're thinking, uh-oh. Because the Bible at times does suggest this idea, book of James and in 1 Corinthians, that sometimes sin leads to illness, but not always. Because Jesus makes this clear later in John chapter 9, verse 3, where there's this blind man. We'll hear that story in a few weeks. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And what Jesus is getting at is, we don't always know. And I think this is important to us, to know that like sometimes Sin leads to illness. Sometimes illness is a result of sin. Sometimes it's not. 
So this is not licensed to go out and say, see somebody in the hospital and say, I wonder what they did. Or to see somebody doing something wrong, he's like, God's going to get you for that one. That's not the way we're to read it. But it's somehow Jesus knew that the man had done something, and he's telling him, you can't go back to that old life. I have made you whole. I've restored you. In a sense, you have been forgiven. And that's kind of the language that Jesus uses, because interestingly, John doesn't talk a whole lot about sin and forgiveness. He introduces Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but there's not so much talk in John as in the other Gospels about sin and forgiveness. But there is this idea of being, being made whole. And being made whole is to be forgiven, to lead a new life. And so he's inviting him to go into this new life. But then we're not sure about this guy again. Because we think, oh, he's doing good here. Because the next thing he does is Jesus comes to him and says, stop sinning. And then he goes and tells the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. You think, here he goes again. Here he is again. Because before, what happened? The religious leader said, well, who is he? I don't know his name. And now somehow he's figured out his name. And so he's like, now I'm going to go tell those religious leaders. But again, I don't think he's ratting Jesus out. Because what had the, what had the religious leaders asked the man about? Who told you to pick up your mat and carry it right? What does he say to the religious leaders? He goes and tells them that what? Jesus told me to pick up. He says, no, Jesus made me well. Jesus is the one who made me whole. And this language that's used here, interestingly, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders is language that's used elsewhere, like in John 16, 14, where that same verb is used, and it's a very positive. So this, where this is, talking about the Holy Spirit. He will glorify me because it is for me that he will receive what he will make known to you. That word make known is the same word that's used here to when he says he told the Jewish leaders. And so every time that same verb is used throughout the rest of the Gospel of John, it's a good thing. And so we get the sense that this man is testifying. He's saying, I'm telling you, there is this Jesus and he made me whole. The man isn't concerned about whether he broke a Sabbath rule or what the Jewish leaders are asking about these questions about who told you to carry a mat. He says, what I want to tell you about Jesus is he made me whole. He restored me and he made me who he is. And now I get to the end of the story here. Now it gets into this long dialogue where Jesus has it out with the religious leaders and tells you this. But I read this story and I have lots of questions. I'm like, well, why that guy? I mean, why when Jesus walks into this big crowd in this big open air, why does he pick that guy? What about all the other people? I mean, it says the pool, this area is filled with people and Jesus picks and heals one guy? And then the bigger question for me is, well, what happened to him after that? I always wonder about that. These people, they encounter Jesus. They have this life-transforming thing. A man who has been paralyzed for 38 years gets told to get up and walk, and he's now able to walk and join the rest of society, maybe see his family again, see friends again, do things he hasn't thought possible. And Jesus has told him to stop sinning and to continue on with his life. It's like, I want to know what he did. I'm one of those people who watches a movie or reads a book and I don't like it when it ends on a cliffhanger and you're like, what did he do? What did he do? 
Did he do what he was supposed to? And that's the thing with all these stories with Jesus. He meets Nicodemus, although we see later Nicodemus comes back and anoints, is part of the funding for Jesus' burial. The woman at the well, she tells some people, but what does she do after that? And I think part of what the biblical writers are doing is they're inviting us into the story. They're inviting us in the story, perhaps to see ourselves in that story and to, to think about ourselves and maybe to put ourselves in that man's place and ask ourselves, how do we respond? And that might be as we kind of close and as you think about application and we think about this man, we may want to ask ourselves the question, do we see Jesus as the one who can make us whole or are we looking elsewhere? Because remember back to the story. The man is sitting there, and when Jesus asks him, do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be made well? The man says, can you help me into the pool? I can't get there. And that's how it is sometimes, is that we have a tendency sometimes to go looking lots of places to be made whole, to be made well. And we think sometimes we have the power to do that. Self-help books are one of the number one selling books in this country. That we have this power to do it ourselves. That if, if we just could be able to, and in sense, sense, that's what the man is like. Well, if I could just get to the pool. If I just had the power to do that. And, and sometimes we think if we just read the right book, if we watch the right video, if we maybe get the right coaching session or the right thing, then we'll have the power to be able to fix it ourselves. And the story is reminding us that there is one and only one who can bring healing and wholeness that we need, and that's Jesus. And so Jesus maybe comes to us and is asking us the question, do you want to be made whole? And now I don't know what wholeness looks like for each and every one of you. I know this big picture of wholeness is it's a life that loves, loves our neighbors as ourselves, that loves God with our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind, that cares for the poor and for the outcast and is generous and is self-giving and is you know, filled with the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, patience, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all these things. That's what it looks like. But it looks different for each one of us. And each one of us maybe has those parts where we're a little bit lame, we're, we're a little bit paralyzed, we're, we're not quite living fully into that. And Jesus is asking us the question, do you want to be made whole? It's an invitation, it opens up possibilities. So I would invite you to hear that question from Jesus to you. Do you want to be made whole? To maybe think, where are those places in my life that I'm looking for something else where I think this pool, this book, this coach, this video, this bottle, this whatever it is can make me whole, can do what I think. And Jesus is saying, do you want to be made whole? I don't want you to look at those things. I want you to look at me, Jesus is saying. But the follow-on to that is just a reminder of the story. Is In part, the story is about the man and that question of do you want to be made whole? But the other part of the story is the reminder that Jesus is in the business of making whole and making new. That's what Jesus does. If Jesus had a job description, if Jesus had a mission statement written on his bedroom wall, it's to come and to make people whole and to make people new, to give them new life. And it doesn't depend on us. He comes into this colonnade, this 
area filled with all these people who are lame and paralyzed to a guy who doesn't seem to understand the questions, a guy who maybe is questionable, a guy who's had sin in his past, a guy who doesn't seem to get it, a guy who may be ratting at Jesus out, and what does he do to him? He gives him life and wholeness. See, because Jesus comes and he gives abundantly and he gives indiscriminately. He doesn't walk and say, well, among all these people, who's the most deserving? But instead, he comes and he gives in abundance. And Jesus will never stop asking if we want to be made whole. Because sometimes Jesus has asked me if I want to be made whole. And it's like, I got it. I'm good. I can handle it myself. And for many of us, and maybe we've had those people in our lives where we see the brokenness, the hurt, and the pain in their lives, and we want to help them, and they say no. After a while, it gets tiring, doesn't it? But see, Jesus never gets tired of asking. Jesus never gets tired of asking if we want to be made whole, because that's his desire. Jesus came to make us whole and to give us new life and to raise us up, to give us life and life eternal, but life and life to the full here and now. And so as we gather each and every Sunday, that's what we celebrate. That's our good news, that Jesus came to make us whole. He asks us, do you want to be made whole? And sometimes when we say no, he'll say, okay, I'm going to ask again tomorrow. And then I'll ask again the next day, and I'll ask again the next day. And then sometimes, even though we don't get it, he just simply says, get up and walk. Because that's the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus is to make us whole and to give us life. That's why we sing. That's why we join together. That's what makes Jesus so amazing. That Jesus has come to make us whole. To ask us if we want to be made well. And Jesus comes and gives his goodness and his wholeness and makes us new and demonstrates his grace abundantly and indiscriminately. And that's the good news that we hear today. Amen.